This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. All right, KGB, did you watch the Olympics? I'm curious. Um, Gene, I did a little bit, mostly for the figure skating. And I was paying attention to the controversy around Camilla Valieva, the 15-year-old Russian skater who tested positive for a banned medical substance, but was still allowed to compete. And as you know, a lot of people, including former Olympians, some of them, were not happy about that. And since she was favored to win a medal, the Olympic organizers had to figure out, like, what to do if the champion turned out to be somebody who popped on a drug test. I'm sure they were dreading that. Mm -hmm. But Valieva ended up stumbling during her routine anyway and finishing fourth. So that became moot. Yeah. Figure skating. There's just always so much drama, KGB. It's like, man. Yeah, it's a perfect cauldron for drama. Mm-hmm. You got the sparkly costumes and the young women, sometimes very young, yes. who are doing extremely difficult and even, to me, dangerous routines. And they've been training for years and years for just this moment. So when they kill it or when they mess up, we can immediately see it all over their faces. It's high stakes on ice skates, Gene. Right, and then you got all the beefs. You got Tanya Harding and that whole incident with her rival and her former homie, Nancy Kerrigan, yeah. or Soria Bona-Lee versus the judges. You know, she gave them the figurative middle finger after she kept getting penalized over and over for doing flips that were not officially allowed in women's figure skating. Jean, my heart was in my mouth every time I watched her do those backflips, which were banned in 1975 for being too dangerous. Mm-hmm. She did them anyway, and the judges were not cool with that. But... Backflips aside, so much of the way people talked about Bonali, her body, her powerful athleticism, the way she wore her makeup even, is reminiscent of the way people talk about Serena Williams. Yep, yep. She was a dark-skinned black woman, in Bonali's case from France, who judges kept saying wasn't feminine enough. Surya Bonali never won a medal. But she was so defiant and unapologetic that she is still revered by a lot of us. Mm -hmm. She was black excellence in a sport with next to no black people in it. When I was real, real young, the biggest rivalry was between Katarina Witt of East Germany and Debbie Thomas from the U.S. Yes, child. I uh, actually watched (laughs) that on television as a young adult. And their big (laughs) Olympic showdown sometimes was called the Battle of the Carmens because they were both skating to music from Bizet's opera. Right, right. I remember that. And then you had this subtext, the Iron Curtain versus the USA. And it was a big deal that the USA was being represented by this black girl from California. A black girl, by the way, who did this while in college and became a doctor, a surgeon afterwards. Although she said in later interviews she had to go to crazy lengths to please the people who ran skating. Like in a Washington Post profile, she said she'd had three nose jobs to bring herself closer to the skater ideal the judges sought. You know, KGB, is interesting. Like, for a while now, U.S. figure skating at the highest levels has turned out some notable superstars of color, right? You got Michelle Kwan. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you got Christy Yamaguchi. Mm-hmm. Recently, you have Nathan Chen. Very recently. And before them, Thai Babylonia in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. 
And, G.D., before all of them, there was a woman named Mabel Fairbanks. Uh, uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea who that is. I'm going to be honest. Neither had I. But our friends at the Blind Landing podcast have. So they've been looking into why, for many, many decades, figure skating was exclusively, in all meanings of that word, such a white sport. And they uncovered this amazing story about Mabel Fairbanks a virtuoso who did more than anyone else to carve out space for black folks in elite figure skating. And while she never got her own shot at the Olympics, she trained and mentored those first skaters of color who did. Oh, wow. So she was kind of like the godmother of black figure skaters. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Mabel died a couple decades ago, but the folks on the Blind Landing team stumbled onto an oral history from Mabel Fairbanks recorded in 1999. Oh, wow. It's tape that's never been heard before because... Well, because it was tape, and we don't use that very much anymore. Right. Um, Mabel's story begins in the 1930s in her Harlem neighborhood. Ah, yes. So the 1930s is like, this is when Harlem is the capital of Black America, basically. Yep, and totally segregated. So Mabel had been skating on a bumpy little pond in a Harlem park, and one day she decided to go to a real skating rink, the one in Central Park. And so she headed to Midtown and plopped down her coins to use this public ice skating rink. And the white people at that rink were not having it. So I stood in line. And then when I got to the window, the lady wouldn't take my money. Go back, little girl. Go away, little girl. Go away. Finally, everybody was in but me. So I got back up to the window. I said, hey, miss. Hey, miss. I'm next. Go away. Go away. So then the manager, he looked out across the ticket window and says, just let her in. She can't do any harm. So they let me in. But that was their mistake. (laughs) From then on, they had to let me in forever. (laughs) I'm going to let Danelle Waterburn of Blind Landing take it from here. Getting through the front door was always the first challenge. But once Mabel made it inside, she still faced verbal, sometimes physical harassment on the ice. The parents, all the parents, we don't want her skating without you. In fact, we don't even want her on the same ice. Get out of here. So I said, I paid my 50 cents, so you go see the manager. (laughs) The manager of the ice rink on 52nd and Broadway looked out for Mabel. He let her skate late at night when there were far fewer people on the ice. On the rink at night, Mabel was able to be free. The only sounds were the wind in her hair and her blades slicing through the ice. Every now and then, skating instructors would catch a glimpse of Mabel's undeniable talent and give her a lesson. Which is how Mabel learned what would become her secret weapon. Skating backwards. The head instructor of the rink, he said, do this. He showed it to me, and I did it. And then I started going so fast. I was going around 20 miles per hour around that rink. I was going so fast until I didn't know how to stop. He forgot to teach me how to stop. (laughs) So I fell from this end and went all the way to the other end. Once Mabel refined her unique talent for skating backwards, it started catching people's attention on the ice. 
And soon, word traveled outside of the rink. A newspaper had me come over there to Brooklyn Ice Palace and had speed skaters come over. It said, now you skate backwards and the speed skaters are going to skate forward. I can skate faster than the speed skaters. So <laughs> anything going backwards I could do. I wasn't too good going forward, but backwards <laughs> I had it. I had it all. <laughs> so that was my thing, skating backwards. Over the next few years, more and more newspapers started writing about Mabel. Even Time Magazine wrote a piece about her, saying that she was as good as the top skaters. With the newfound praise and attention, Mabel thought she could make a living as a professional skater in ice shows. I tried to get into the center theater show and try to get into the ice fallers. They say, we don't hire Negroes, because they were saying Negro around that time. And I kept trying to tell them I was black. They said, you should be ashamed of yourself calling yourself black. And I said, I'm not a Negro, I'm black. I said, my grandfather told me I belong to the black race. <laughs> so, but that didn't mean a thing. Mabel knew who she was, and she wanted others to see her as she saw herself. But she was trying to explain herself to someone who didn't see her at all. He said, you know what would happen? If you go out on that ice, everybody in the arena would walk out. As I tell you what, I'll work for free the first night. And then if the people do not walk out and applaud me, you can give me a contract. They said, no, we can't take that chance. Because if the audience do not walk out, then the cast would walk out. They would not skate with you. Rockefeller Center Theater wouldn't hire her. Ice Follies rejected her. It seemed like no one wanted to give Mabel a chance. Until... Sonia Henney came to town, and I'd gotten very good now. Her manager, he said, you know something? I could get you into Sonia Henney's show. Sonia Henney, the most famous skater in the world. This was the chance of a lifetime. The agent, he told Sonia that he had this black girl. Sonia, when she came, she said, is Mabel Fairbanks as good as people say she is? He said, if she wasn't, I would not have signed her for your show. So she said, then if she's that good, she's too good for my show, she'll steal it. No, she cannot be in it. Sonia Henney, the world's best figure skater, felt too intimidated to skate with Mabel. But America's best figure skater wanted to nurture Mabel's talent. Maribel Vincent, whenever she came to New York, um, she would work with me. Maribel Vincent was a nine-time U.S. national champion. She knew greatness when she saw it, but she also knew the limits of how far Mabel could go. And she said, now this is our secret, don't tell anyone that I'm working with you, giving you lessons. I, she said, because you're not going anywhere. They're not going to allow you in competition. There were no signs of change on the horizon in the exclusive white world of competitive figure skating. I just thought, if you're that good, you just go to the Olympics. But no. It was the mid-1940s. And with no route to joining a tour, no path to competing, Mabel realized she had to take matters into her own hands. Maribel Vincent said to me, Mabel, you're not going to get into any show. You have to do your own show. 
After the break, Mabel starts her own show and a movement. There was no question that for some reason the stars were all aligned, that most of the top black skaters were being taught by Mabel Fairbanks. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Gene. Karen. Code Switch. So as we heard before the break, Mabel Fairbanks realized that if the white folks who ran the ice skating troops wouldn't let her be in their shows, she was just going to have to start her own. Here's Danelle Wedderburn. But that was so much easier said than done. After all, to do an ice show, you need a rink. So Mabel and a family friend named Wally Hunter built her very own portable ice rink. Uncle Wally had built a little six-by-six ice skating rink, which I kept in my bedroom. And I would practice until I got tired, and then I would go to bed and sleep a couple hours and get up and practice some more until I learned to master that six-by-six. And Mabel had it down to a science. Just put in crushed dry ice, and then on top, you water it down. And within an hour, you had a sheet of ice. She managed to design a whole show on that six-by-six mobile rink. She'd write her own music and sew her own costumes. Mabel was doing things on the ice that hadn't been done before. She was infusing modern and tap dance into her routines, modeling herself after cutting-edge black dancers like Katherine Dunham and Jenny Lagan. But when Mabel practiced at the ice rinks, the white establishment there, they just didn't get it. <laughs> I all this jive and everything I was doing on the ice. They say, you're not skating, that's dancing. And then when I get ready to dance, they say, you're not dancing. You're skating. (laughs) There's always some excuse. Most of Mabel's gigs were for the people who understood her best. The Black community in Harlem. Night after night, Mabel brought the portable rink to supper clubs and community centers, putting on fundraisers for children, vets, and hospital patients. Mabel hypnotized crowds with her signature moves and vibrant costumes. Dressed in feathers, fur, and rhinestones, 
with brightly colored skates and flaming red hair to match. It was a union of camp and old school glamour. Mabel was really starting to get her name out there. And the name was not Maybell Felder. It was Mabel Fairbanks. A new bold and classy stage name for a young woman who is becoming just that. A new chapter of Mabel's life started in January 1950, when she got her very first touring opportunity, an ice show that was traveling through Latin America and the Caribbean. The way the promoter saw it, what made Mabel a liability in America made her an asset in countries like Antigua, Mexico, and Barbados. You're going to a dark country. You've got to have a dark stager, that's for sure. <laughs> for some Black artists during segregation, one way to escape the unique confines of American white supremacy was traveling abroad for work. This was a chance for Mabel to grow as a performer. Skating on custom-built sets alongside a cast of other artists, learning new moves and routines. And experiencing that creative growth helped Mabel land her first big gig back in the States. When I got back from Mexico, well, that's when uh, Frosty Frolics came up for me. It's Frosty Frolics, your musical comedy on ice. Frosty Frolics was a weekly variety TV show that featured the country's most talented ice skaters including Mabel. It was filmed in Los Angeles, where she had made a new home for herself. Driving down the sun-drenched roads, turning on to the Paramount studio lot to perform in front of a live audience. It was everything she wanted. It was just fantastic. I, I, I tell you, I was, I was just in seventh heaven doing it, and everybody in the audience stood up applauding. Oh, so I stole the show, of course. Then they got angry because I stole the show. Mabel was expected to dull her shine and fade into the background. I did all these numbers and then, don't you ever do that again. You're not going to be in the show. I'll find some way to get you out. And soon enough, a higher up at Frosty Frolics made it clear that there would be a price to pay for her star shining so bright. Mabel, you've got to fall. I said, what do you mean fall? He said, if you don't fall and let the audience see you fall, I'm going to write you out of the show. The Frosty Frolics producer wanted Mabel to fall in front of the audience. He wanted Mabel to look like a fool. So, oh, stupid me. I went on and did a fall. So he wrote me out of the show anyway. But I wasn't clever enough to know this. Taking that fall, Mabel called that moment the one regret of her career. Mabel knew it was possible to achieve greatness because she saw her peers doing it. Mabel would mingle with other Black performers, jazz and blues women like Ella Fitzgerald and Josephine Baker. Like Mabel... They also moved to Harlem as young girls with big dreams and grew up into women who were calling the shots, who had agency, who were changing things for the next generation. That's what Mabel wanted to do. That's 
who Mabel wanted to be. It might have been too late for Mabel to reach the heights of competitive skating, but she felt this was the moment for the next generation of black skaters to break through. So I wouldn't let anyone train me around because God had chosen me to put black skating on the map. And that's exactly what she did. By the mid-1950s, Mabel had settled into her life in L.A. and found a new career as a skating instructor. It was the start of the civil rights movement. Athletes like Jackie Robinson and Althea Gibson had broken the color barrier in baseball and tennis. And Mabel knew this was the moment to make a change in the skating world. Since I could not get in, then I had to train other Black skaters to get in. It finally seemed possible for a Black skater to enter the competition ranks. But there were still big hurdles to making that change happen. As Mabel saw it, three big hurdles. I said, we've got to work to get minorities into clubs. The first hurdle was membership. In order to compete, you needed to join a skating club, but no clubs would give black skaters membership. That's when I learned about individual membership. Mabel discovered an ingenious loophole. If her students said they were too busy with school to join a skating club full-time, they could take the skills test needed to qualify for competitions with an individual membership. And then when I got ready to test them, the club said, we can't test them. We don't test Negroes. I said, well, you gave me a rule book, and this rule book says individual members. I said, they are individual members, so you have to test them. Oh, boy, they were mad. <laughs> the second hurdle was skating tests. To make it to the next level, Mabel's students had to show judges how well they could do the basic jumps and spins. But passing those tests meant getting approval in a sport where prejudice could be veiled under the guise of subjective scoring. So then this judge, she was so mad. So then when I had a black kid go up for a test, she stood up in the bleachers. I will never pass one of Mabel's students. They're all fail when I'm judging. I said, well, I've got to do something about her. Mabel reported her to the U.S. Figure Skating Association. So I wrote to USFSA and told me this woman was biased. And I said, this woman should not be judging. From then on, she passed every one of my kids. Mm -hmm. She was so afraid of me. (laughs) Her instincts were right. The times were changing. The third and final step in Mabel's plan was also her greatest joy. Finding kids who could skate. And I mean really skate. Kids like Atoy Wilson. I was this little black kid who loved to figure skate, who wanted to be a good figure skater, and she was able to nurture that element for me to be very proud of who I was. Atoy Wilson met Mabel in the late 1950s. He was eight years old, and Mabel threw him right into the deep end his first time on the ice. I remember when she would take my little hand and she'd be swinging me across that ice and everything. And my eyes are like getting really big, like going, wait a minute, this is a little too fast. But okay, I'm trusting you, Mabel. (laughs) Mabel left a lasting impression on Atoy. 
one that he remembers vividly, 60 years later. You know, she always had her gold skates or pink skates or red skates, red hair sometimes, pink hair sometimes, you know. Mabel, body-wise, was not a little petite ballerina. She had a strong bone. You know, she had that strength about her. Mabel had been teaching for years, but Atoy was the first Black student she thought could go all the way. And Atoy just loved it. He ate it up, learned real fast. And he was so far above everybody else. Even before I was skating, she was instructing other black kids, sort of recreationally. But she said, this little boy has this talent. This little boy is going to break open the doors that Mabel Fairbanks is opening for him. And Mabel was right. In 1966, Atoy became the first African-American to win a U.S. national title in figure skating. Mabel had that just that unique spark that just you you would want to do anything for her. You know, she'd say jump higher. Yes, I'll jump higher because you just you feel it. The combination of Atoy's dedication and Mabel's ability to train and inspire was a recipe for success. Mabel's plan was working. Black figure skaters were making their way onto the scene. I don't think it was happening in Detroit. I don't think it was happening in Philadelphia, New York, Chicago. Uh Uh-uh. It was happening right here with Mabel, here in Southern California. And that is such myself, Leslie Robinson, Richard Yule, and Shelley McClady were the first African-American national pair champions. There was no question that for some reason, the stars were all aligned, that most of the top black skaters were being taught by Mabel Fairbanks. And the bond is strong. I can't, I can't even explain to you how strong it is. This is Thai Babylonia. We are all bonded. Atoy, myself, Richard, Shelley, Bobby, Randy. We're family. She was one of the youngest in Mabel's constellation of promising skaters in the 60s. And Tyra remembers looking up to the older kids who'd whiz past her on the ice. On the railing, watching Richard, thinking, I want a double let's like Atoy's double let's. I mean, just... Mabel had a rainbow color stable of skaters. Mabel embraced everyone and she didn't set anyone apart. You could be a beginner skater or you could be a nationally ranked skater or you could, you know, be a recreational skater. She treated us all the same. Mabel had an uncanny ability to recognize someone's star quality before they even recognized it in themselves. And maybe never more so than when she brought Ty together with another student, Randy Gardner, as a pair skating team. But we were taking from her as little solo skaters. And she said, Ty, hold his hand and skate around the rink. I said, okay, you guys are going to skate together. You know, and uh, you're going to do very well. 18-year-old Ty Babylonia from Mission Hills, California. 20-year-old Randy Gardner from Los Angeles. Ty and Randy, they became U.S. national champions. And eventually world champions. Ty Babylonia and Randy Gardner have just completed a performance that's the best in the world. Mabel's coaching led to the manifestation of a shared dream. She funneled it all into us. Everything. To the point where we, if our parents couldn't pay for some lessons, no big deal. Pay me later. 
pay me, you don't have to pay me at all. She was that, she was that kind and so not selfish. Mabel and her students, they were family. She was my second mom. We were the children she never had. She always, always called you a most amazing word. You were always her little precious. She would put us all in her little car, drive us to the rink, we'd stay there all day, and we would have sleepovers on Friday night. She had a beautiful home, Craftsman House in Laurel Canyon, where we would, you know, spend the night. That was our second home. In some ways, she was our mother, she was our friend, she was our mentor, and eventually, um, we deserted her. We left her. Randy and I left. Richard Yule and Shelley McClady left. Bobby Beauchamp left. We all left her. Mabel students would make their way to the national level and find themselves at a crossroads. Stay with Mabel or move to a coach with more competitive experience and cachet in the skating world. Or we never, I, I don't remember the conversation with the parents and Mabel that we were leaving. I just knew we were on to the next level of our career and we were excited about it. As a little kid, you don't understand emotions and that she, this was really rough on her. And she was sad, devastated when we all left. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe we were selfish you know, in our own way, because we wanted to be champions. We wanted to be on those Olympic teams. We wanted to be on those national podiums. And as we're moving in the higher ranks and things of this sort, it was it was sort of necessary. It, there was an evolution, and then you had to evolve from there. But Mabel wasn't so sure that it was necessary. All the black kids, they all made mistakes. Once they got up to nationals, the parents felt they needed a white instructor next to them. The way Mabel saw it, she brought them this far. Who was to say she couldn't take them all the way? Right. They just can't see. They don't see how I knew how it should be played. Bless their little hearts. It doesn't bother me. Despite what Mabel said, Ty knew the pain cut a little deeper than that. You know, she was pissed, as I think anyone would be when you lose your family to another yeah. skating coach, a white male. Yeah, she wasn't happy about it. But for Ty, as hard as it was to leave Mabel, there was no doubt in her mind that she needed to go train with another coach, John Nix, to make it to the top. He was the number one pair skating coach. I mean, it was so next level, and we improved so quickly with him. He had done it. He lived it. Mabel didn't live it. Mabel was not at the Olympics. Mabel was just surviving. She was limited. I hate describing it that way, but she was limited, especially as a pair coach. Can't, there's no comparison. But she did the best she could. But Mabel wasn't ready to lose her family. In the 1970s, after her star skaters had left, Mabel went to work for the coach that took on Ty and a number of her athletes, John Nix. As Mabel describes it, working with Nix was complicated. John Nix kept saying, why don't you come work over here? Why don't you work over here? 
because he wanted all my students over there, of mm-hmm. course. In her new position at Nick's Rink, Mabel felt relegated to the side. With Mabel, there's, um, there's a little resentment to Mr. Nick's. It was hard on her. It really, really was hard on her. Despite the complexity of her emotions, Mabel never took it out on the skaters. She stayed focused on the bigger picture. You know, life is too short to be angry with anyone. I have to be on this earth such a short length of time. I don't have time to be angry with anyone. I can't carry a chip on my shoulder. So I just say, be happy and help other people to overcome the burden they have. In the 1980s, with things slowing down in L.A., Mabel jumped at the opportunity to help a new generation of athletes. A coach named Jim Hewlett invited her to come up and work with his group of diverse skaters in Northern California. He would ask me to do certain things with Rudy and Christy Yamaguchi. Only thing I would do would sort of give them good advice mentally, you know. I like serving as their mentor. The skaters Mabel mentored up north, Debbie Thomas, Rudy Galindo, Christy Yamaguchi, went on to reach new heights for Black and Latino and Asian American skaters. It was one more generation to experience Mabel's magic. By the 1990s, Mabel had retired from coaching. She came back to Southern California and she was retired from figure skating and, you know, she lived a modest life. A quiet life in Burbank and all, and I would hang out. We'd go out for lunch, and sometimes she'd, you know, she'd ask, say, "Let's go down to the ice rink and see the kids, see how they might, you know, some of these kids are doing." Now, again, the kids are no longer kids; they're now coaches themselves. But to Mabel, they would always be kids—the kids she never had. You think to yourself, "It's like okay, now we're now it's our turn to take care of her. She took care of us for years. Now it's our turn to take care of her." And that's what we all did. In 1997, Mabel was in her 70s when a letter came from Hugh Graham, the president of U.S. Figure Skating. Dr. Graham wrote me a letter and saying that, congratulations, you have been chosen as one of the inductees to the United States Figure Skating Hall of Fame. It was long overdue, but Mabel would become the first black skater inducted into the U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame. I called Ty and told her that I was accepted and I'd be going. And she said, oh, that's good, Mabel. I will take you. That acknowledgement in 1997, that induction, that that was it. That was her Oscar. And Ty was going to make sure that Mabel showed up to her Oscars looking like a star. When she was inducted into the Hall of Fame, you know, she had really nothing elegant to wear. She had clothes, but it's like, well, no, we can, you deserve something better, Mabel. So we, I took her shopping and she got this, she goes, I go, what, what's your look? What do you want to look like? She goes, I want to sparkle. So we got her this little sparkly jacket and a black velvet dress and she looked amazing. Ty brought Mabel to Nashville, Tennessee for the induction ceremony at the 1997 National Championships. They walked down the red carpet, arm in arm, onto the ice, with Mabel leaning on Ty for support. As the world of competitive skating 
the world that had rejected Mabel for so many years. But she looked glamorous, she was happy, she was proud. I loved it. And just the reaction from people she didn't even know in the arena. They, they just, they rose. And the thunderous applause. Then they hand me the flowers. And um, then everybody was stood up when they called my name, of course, and was waving. So <laughs> I would say it was the happiest day of her life. Mabel Fairbanks passed away on September 29th, 2001. Mabel left her estate to Atoy, and he and Ty are working together to tell her story. They're hoping to produce a movie about Mabel and get some of her memorabilia into the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So it's just, it's protecting that legacy and getting the stories out about Mabel. And though proud of her achievements and legacy, Mabel was well aware that her work, her mission, wasn't done yet. When I look back at it, I'm saying, skating has moved up, but not that much. It is happening little by little. We have come a very long way, but we still have twice as far to go. Since the generation of athletes Mabel trained, there haven't been many elite Black American skaters in the decades since. When you see that a national cha- U.S. national championship has one Black skater, Star Andrews, it's got to be better. It's got to do better. That's, that's, that's not it. That's not Mabel's legacy. That, you know, U.S. figure skating needs to get on the ball. In recent years, other institutions have tried to get on the ball. Organizations like Figure Skating in Harlem and Diversify Ice, groups trying to nurture the next generation of skaters of color. And Atoy and Ty have stepped up too. We have a fund, a scholarship in her name, the Mabel Fairbanks Skating Lior's Scholarship Fund. And it's raising funds for skaters who can't afford costumes, ice time, coaching, and just making it available to young black and brown skaters. And see, that's, that's planting the seed. That's the power of Mabel. Ty and Atoy are optimistic for the future. And maybe they get that optimism from Mabel, that undying hope that burned bright. No matter how many people try to put out her flame. I enjoyed everything I did in ice skating. And I will still do it the same way. I still go up to that window and say, hey, miss, I'm next. Miss, I'm next. I don't care if it happened all over again. I enjoyed the fact that I knew I was going to get in there. I enjoyed every moment. All right, y'all, that is our show. The audio of Mabel Fairbanks that you heard is provided with permission 
from the LA84 Foundation, which works with kids by using sports to promote development. This story was brought to us by the folks at the Blind Landing Podcast, which does deep dives into elite sports. Its first season was about the world of gymnastics. This season is all about figure skating. And to that end, special thanks to the Blind Landing crew, Ari Saperstein, Danelle Wedderburn, Jenna Levin, Diana Apong, with help from Tracy Hunt and Kyla Leah. You can follow us on IG and Twitter at NPR Code Switch. I'm on Twitter at GD215. That's G-E-E-D-E-215. Karen is at Karen Bates. If email is more your thing, ours is codeswitch at NPR.org. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcast. This episode was produced by Alyssa Jean Perry and edited by Steve Drummond. And I will be remiss if I did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch Massive, Leah Danella, Christina Kala, Kumar Devarajan, Jess Kung, and Summer Tomad. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. Our intern is Nathan Pugh, who fact-checked this episode. As for me, I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. Be easy, y'all. See ya. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.